Hey guys, John Von Frankenstein here from Moonlight Madness Radio. I'm recording this here because a flash drive with this episode of the Hauntsville Cryptcast showed up at my house the other day. At first I thought, oh cool, sneak preview of a new episode. But after listening to it, I couldn't help but feel like something was weird about it. I don't know, maybe it was the quality? Doza wouldn't have let all those weird audio glitches stay in there, would he? Maybe it was how concerned Anna sounded at the end. Or maybe it's the fact that I haven't heard from the gang in a week. I stopped by the theater where Anthony usually records on my way to work today, and no one was there. And what's more concerning... What's more concerning is that the cellar door was left wide open. I'm not sure what's going on here, but I hope they're alright. Anyway, I'm John Von Frankenstein from Moonlight Madness Radio. Happy hauntings. I'll see you in hell. Hauntsville Cryptcast is filmed in front of a live studio audience. Woo! Woo! And then, like, double all the sounds I made. So it sounds like we have an audience. <laughs> Welcome back to the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. And today... We're going to be talking about found footage films. And mockumentaries. I mean, they're the same thing, right? No, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did want to discuss that there is a difference between a found footage film and a mockumentary throughout this. Oh. Yeah, my recommendation is a mockumentary. Yeah, same. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I doubt it's the same one. Oh, wait, maybe. So anyway, and I'm glad you brought up that there is a difference between found footage films and mockumentaries, because I do want to talk about both of them during this segment. I do want to talk about the difference between them and which elements of both are effective and, in a lot of cases, not effective. A lot of people might be coming into this episode the same way that I did, and you hear found footage and it just kind of strikes a chord. Is not my preferred method of watching a film. The first reaction I had when Doza and Anna were like, let's do a found footage episode was, oh, great, I hate found footage films. But then we started talking about some of them, and I realized there are a lot of found footage films and mockumentaries that I do like. So going through the research process of this episode was a, a real trip. And you get the whole found footage goggles after watching so many of them, I've found out recently. After watching, like, three in a row, because I think we watched all of the Hell House movies at once and afterwards everything i was very aware of my own perspective i was just going down making a cup of tea and i was like i felt like i was in the first five minutes of halloween if i pick up a knife right now like this is the beginning of halloween and it, it was just really trippy how aware you are of your own vision i guess after watching so many of these So that's definitely one of the major points that I can appreciate about found footage, and specifically found footage instead of mockumentary. Found footage really plays with perspective. Found footage is almost always the cameraman is a part of the film, is your perspective, is a character. Yes, thank you, Doza. The camera (laughs) operator is a part of the film, is the person who gives you your perspective. And for a lot of found footage... Perspective is a key element because you are bound to what the camera operator sees. Anything that happens out of that field of view, you're not privy to that information. You're not entitled to that. You have a limited and narrow viewpoint of what's happening. There's no additional camera angles, usually. And I think when done right, that creates a real element of suspense because you're waiting 
to find out what that noise was off screen. You're waiting to find out what's going to happen to this character rather than the one that's disappeared from view. So when it's done right, I can definitely appreciate that. But the emphasis is really on done right. There are so many times in the found footage genre that they just kind of throw that away. People forget that they're making a found footage film. I feel like a, a lot of directors and filmmakers that like new filmmakers that want to break out into something say like, oh, let's do a found footage one because it's it's cheap and it's easy. And yeah, you can do it on a budget. But like just because you're filming it for cheap doesn't mean the content has to be cheap as well. And so you get a lot of the, the same rehash things over and over again. These like I if I have to see another jump scare reliant found footage film, I'm going to lose my marbles because you can build suspense and dread without having to throw it in everybody's face. They say like, oh, you know, here's something scary. We'll toss it at the camera for a cheap scare. And that'll be like our main hook. There's also like this huge misconception that it's easy to make a found footage film. Because, yeah. Yeah. It's easy to make a shit found footage film. Exactly. It's not easy at all. It takes so much skill to actually make a good found footage film. Watching like Wreck, the director of Wreck literally panned out every scene as if it was just being shot as a normal movie, decided where he wanted the camera to be, decided what he wanted lighting wise, what he wanted to be in view, what he wanted not to be in view, spent a whole ton of detail on like practical effects and makeup and making sure that he was building suspense without it just being like, oh, we're only going to provide a scare whenever you can see a zombie. Being able to pay that much attention to detail and thinking about what they're going to see rather than going, oh, here's a camera, go nuts, improvise, which is what most people think the majority of found footage is, is just people improvising with a camera. And that's when you get films that make you feel sick. And that's when you get films where it doesn't have any suspense build up. It's such a skill to build up that much suspense without the scares, like you said. Yeah, like if you don't have a strong narrative, if you don't have a strong idea of what you're doing, it's going to feel disjointed. It's going to feel insincere. And that planning process is vital to, to making something like that. The found footage aspect of it, of having it being shot through a camera is supposed to provide uh, a level of reality and like sort of fourth wall breaking into that uh, filmmaking process. And if you don't have anything beyond the fact that we're filming this on a camera, then it's just going to fall flat. That's where pre-production is so much more important in making a found footage film than in standard filmmaking. Because your budget is your enemy. Most of these films are made for under $20,000. I think Paranormal Activity's budget was 15000 but Blair Witch Project was made for, I think, 60000 So that's another thing that I have kind of a gripe with, where... You have this money that's being shelled into these films. I didn't particularly like Paranormal Activity. Whoa. I didn't particularly like The Blair Witch Project. Whoa! But to see what they did with $60,000, what they did with $15,000, there is something admirable about that. But then I look at films like Creep, which was made for, I think, under $5,000 and has one of the most chilling, suspenseful stories I've seen in found footage creep is the first film i've ever seen and you saw me do it where i grabbed my teddy bear and hid behind it because i couldn't take the suspense i've <laughs> never had that reaction in my life to a film i've seen Those other people do it rip. and i wasn't even expecting that much from creep when i watched it Anthony was like yeah it's good and luckily he'd like well he hadn't hyped it up that much so i was like yeah, it's probably gonna be all right 
it, it still makes me feel uncomfortable to think about. Everything was perfect with that. The direction was perfect. The suspense building is literally the most perfect suspense building I've seen in a film. That completely blew my mind, especially my reaction to it, because I just don't react like that to films. So I have uh, just a, a slight correction on, uh, Anthony, what you said about the Blair Witch's budget. I rewatched those while we were going into this. I uh, read a bunch of interviews with some of the directors, and various sources said they may have spent up to $750,000. Wow, that's Ooh, disgusting. That's, $750,000 to make the Blair Witch so, Project? Uh, up to, up to. Why? Um, what did it go on? Usually, uh, a lot of it is uh, locations and post-production stuff, editing, and marketing. That's what the Blair Witch why it was such a huge success is because of how well it was marketed. So the the official Blair Witch budget is around $60,000, but according to the filmmakers themselves, like that doesn't account for everything that went into making it the success that it was. Although it was an absolute smash hit. Like one of the highest grossing movies like per what like what am I trying to say like ratios? Budget to box office. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know what? Yeah, I will correct myself. Marketing is a huge thing in a film's success, especially these found footage films. And I remember in 1999, yeah. Blair Witch, I was like eight and seeing the Blair Witch symbol everywhere and hearing people talk about how this was a real thing, a thing that happened. So I can appreciate that immersive element. The Blair Witch Project definitely tried to make this a real world folklore this story happening in the exact same universe that we currently live in there's nothing wholly unbelievable about it i haven't seen i've only seen blair witch project once and that was when i was around 10 when it came out and my friend's older brother went and rented it for us and me and my other friend we just sat there and watched it like as soon as it came out and i remember thinking it was kind of creepy and i thought it was cool because i at that point i don't think i'd ever seen a found footage so i was like this is revolutionary it and it was i will give it that it may not have been the first found footage film but after the blair witch project that's when we saw that spike in it and there are really only one and a half other notable found footage films that came before it. <laughs> yeah blair witch like definitely like led the way it's, it's kind of like how Scream wasn't the first slasher, but it brought it back for that era. That's basically what Blair Witch did. It brought back that type of cinematography and kind of paved the way for so many others after that. But when you think about it, when the Blair Witch Project came out, the early 2000s, that's when home movie making was kind of revolutionizing itself. We were getting the mini DV tapes. It was getting easier for people to do at-home editing. It became easier for filmmakers to go off and shoot something and then seeing the Blair Witch Project come out and have the success it did. Naturally, it's going to get inside people's heads that, wow, okay, I can go and make this film that I want to make just with what I have at home and not break the bank to do it. Kind of going off of Lloyd Kaufman's philosophy, just go out and make your movie, worry about the quality of it later. As long as you're telling your story, as long as you're getting all the elements that you want to see in it, there's no reason you shouldn't make your movie. I do think you should. everyone should be able to make their movie, but at least, at least research a little bit on how to do it. Because, like, the problem is with, like, leading up to this episode, I'd seen most of the ones that I'm going to mention throughout the episode already, but trying to find new ones especially to try and find like recommendations and stuff. 
I watched some really bad films and the majority of them are on Amazon Prime because anyone's <laughs> movie is allowed on there. Like literally anyone's movie can be on there. I just watched some really bad films and uh, that's what I was saying before of like just giving someone a camera and not giving them a script. Like sometimes it can work. I know that was it Blair Witch didn't have a script, did it? They just they had they had thirty five pages that were written, but okay. a lot of the dialogue was largely improvised. Yeah, um, so it worked out in that case. Well, I can't really remember the movie that well. Um, I couldn't find it to rewatch it, but it it made an impact. It did well. So yeah, they got away with it. But I watched at least two films where you could tell it was just someone going around with their phone and just like running around with the shaky cam and like people just going hey you i found something over there like just like do some research and put at least a basis together for it if you if you want to go the improv route at least have like notes to refer back to of what you want them to be doing so yeah sorry everyone should make their movie it's just try and make it good (laughs) the one big thing that the Blair Witch Project has as its saving grace beyond its marketing is the Blair Witch Theory which I only heard when I got to college and I feel like it makes watching the Blair Witch Project it makes it worth a second watch to see some of the subtleties that were missed and it makes it a more compelling movie okay so when I first watched this obviously I was really young so in my head the whole film was about an actual, you know, witch that was trying to, like, hunt them down and was possessing some guy and blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until you guys told me this theory last time we brought up Blair Witch Project that I was, like, mind blown and really want to rewatch it because from what I can remember, it completely makes sense. But, like, can you guys go over the theory? So this is something that, like, rewatching it as an adult, I, I can now not see it any other way, where it's just like, yeah, that's what the movie is. So it, the premise of the the Blair Witch in the fiction of the movie is also an urban legend, and they're supposed to be going to try to sort of chase this legend, like in a Ghost Hunters style sort of documentary. And then like weird paranormal shit, quote unquote paranormal shit starts happening to them while they're out in the woods. But none of it is like anything beyond the realm of like possibility so like piles of rocks twigs tied together the guys are the ones that are mostly experiencing this thing uh and usually any of the paranormal stuff happens at night while heather is asleep and she herself mentions in supplementary materials attached to the movie and over the course of the movie that she is a very heavy sleeper so the way that i see this movie is that these two guys tricked this girl into going into the woods as a ploy to murder her and they have been setting up all this the entire time and have been gaslighting her from the moment that they make contact uh how how in-depth do you want me to go into this guy had to talk for a couple minutes there are articles upon articles upon articles like it's nothing groundbreaking coming from us if people want to dig deeper and see how far this rabbit hole goes i definitely encourage it it does make the blair witch project a more enjoyable film and as much as i want to believe that that's the case i never got around to watching the other two films but i'm pretty sure they contradict that. skip them i think there was like a reddit ama and i don't understand how reddit works because i'm like a grandpa man with uh, eduardo sanchez one of the directors of blair witch and he makes a point to say like where somebody was like hey what happened at the end i think the thing that like sold it for me is he says why didn't mike respond to heather 
calling him. And so like that's the the famous scene where he's like in the back of the basement facing the wall and she's calling out to him and then somebody comes up behind her and supposedly kills her. It just like it doesn't feasibly make sense for a witch to be like, I'm going to possess Mike and then make her uh, make him go get head of the go upstairs and then all the way downstairs. And then I'm going to make Mike stand in this corner and then I'm going to sneak behind Heather and bash her over the head or whatever the fuck happens to her. It just like that's that's human interaction there. That's not paranormal. That's another one of those iconic shots that the Blair Witch pioneered and we've seen it in straight narrative film and found footage over and over and over again. You have a character just staring into the corner and then you know because you've seen it time and again, something is happening behind them. Yeah, it's eerie and it's effective. And uh, even to this day, stuff like that gets me where I'm like, oh God, what is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? And then it happens and I'm like, oh, I can't believe it was that. They threw one in Hell House and I immediately was taken out of the moment because I was like, oh, something will happen behind them. And then sure enough, clown. (laughs) <laughs> well, the thing is, in Hell House, is you're constantly looking behind, like you're looking in every single doorway, every like behind every single character as they're talking to the camera. Like you're just trained to look out for those little things. And the thing that really annoyed me about the first one in particular of Hell House, like I did really enjoy those films, but I didn't like the fact that every time that there was something behind them that you clearly noticed, they then like froze. And zoomed in on like the thing, like dun dun dun. It's like, yeah, we saw it. Thank <laughs> you. It takes it away. It kind of talks down to your audience about keep an eye out. You know, if you're paying attention, you'll be bone chillingly scared. But instead, you don't have to pay attention. Don't worry. We'll come back and show you the thing. And it's like, yeah, I'm also watching the movie. Movie. You don't have to tell me <laughs> to keep watching the movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I've become low-key obsessed with Hell House since we watched all three of them back to back to back. Mm -hmm. Have Um, you seen them before this? No. No, This is my first time. Oh, yo! So I really liked all of the Hell House movies, but my biggest problem is number three. I need whoever was in charge of makeup in that film to just please not do makeup anymore because that prosthetic on his face with the cut down his face... Oh my god, I kept saying to Anthony, it's growing, it's growing. It was like a weird tumor on his face that kept pulsating and changing, and no one did a light test because they just smeared some foundation around these badly done creases on this prosthetic that was so thick, it may as well have been an extra limb. All I could see every time that he was on the camera was that stupid prosthetic and how badly it was blended. And I know it seems like such a small thing, but when you are watching, I think anyone who wouldn't even know about makeup, special effects makeup would watch this film and just be staring at it. It's like that mole in Austin Powers. Like it's, you just can't stop staring at this one thing on his face. And I missed half of his dialogue because of it. So I just really needed to make the point. It reads a lot like a haunt actor where they're like, oh, you're not in position yet. Like, here, let me just do this real quick and then go out there. I don't know. Like, why they didn't take the time? They, they have the time to just sit, I guess, and do some makeup. Like, if you're going to commit to it, commit to it. Especially because he's the only character that, like, really needed <laughs> Exactly! <laughs> Fun makeup tip, though. Scar wax may not have been, or a prosthetic, I'm pretty sure it was scar wax, though, may not have been the best option to create that look because it's thick and unbelievable. Rigid collodion, which costs, like, $10 a bottle, 
makes really believable scars. They're very slight. It pinches the skin together and makes it look like that shiny scarred skin. Perfect for making that kind of a look. And please put foundation on the rest of the face if you're going to put it around the scar. Because no foundation completely matches a skin tone exactly. To the point where you can just blend that tiny little area and the rest is just normal skin. Blend it out. Blend, blend, blend. Listen to Edward Scissorhands. I was so prepared to go into Hell House and not like it because I'm such a diehard Houses October Built fan. Houses October Built came out in 2014. Hell House came out in 2015. But the original Houses October Built documentary came out in 2011. And so, like, for me... What year is it now? Fuck. It's it's long. It's old. We're dying. <laughs> for me, Houses October Built kind of revolutionized the haunted house genre. Like, not haunted houses in, like a ghost lives here, but like the haunted attraction genre. So I was fully prepared not to like Hell House. And then the first one, there's there's so much that is implied and not said that for the entire time after, I was thinking like, okay, well, this happened, but then that means that this, this, this. There's so many things that you can piece together, even though they talk down to you about the scares. The chilling, scary thing is the amount of lore that they've built up surrounding this hotel surrounding these characters surrounding these circumstances it's so lore heavy that that's why i watched the other two films i couldn't get it out of my head i needed to know as much as i possibly could about hell house the entity of hell house and that prompted me to dig even further because immersion is such an important part of found footage it's the most gripping element of why you're watching it because you feel like you're there it's made to feel like it's real and happening in the world that we know First of all, the hotel that they shot Hell House at is a real hotel in Pennsylvania, not New York, and they host a haunted house every year. So I'm dying to go there now. Hey, no thank you. It's weird because I think I know the layout of the hotel just from watching those movies. I know where to not walk, which is inside the house. (laughs) Um, But also, like... (laughs) I would know when I get to a certain point, like, I'm not turning left because that's where the basement is, and I'm not turning this way because that's where 2C is, and you get to know the whole layout of this hotel just from watching the films. Yeah, and uh, you and I can have fucking caramel apples outside while Anthony goes and gets his- I don't do haunts, which is what makes it more scary. I miss haunts, I miss haunt life and haunt culture, and I don't think they're going to come back this season, which is really disappointing. It's upsetting. I'll do them, I just don't like being there. I might do a socially distanced haunt, because my whole thing is I don't want people near me, and that's what freaks me out about it. So yeah, if they're like really far away, I'd be like, okay, I can handle this. Yeah, spooky clown, you stay all the way over (laughs) there. Oh, you can't come within six feet of me? Like, I... They have to measure and shit. They got their little... But then, like, that exact concept of, like, a socially distant haunt, like, all these ways around it to get people into these places is part of why Hell House works three times for three different movies. And like you said, knowing the layout of the house just from watching the first film, that's what makes Mitch's character compelling because we believe he can map out the entire house because he edited the first film. And then for the third one, Socially Distant Haunt, they did uh, Promenade Theater where... The whole thing is just an immersive haunt that doesn't rely on the haunt itself, which makes everything happening around it infinitely more terrifying because is it part of the show? Is it not? But this does bring me to the major downfall of Hell House and found footage. Emphasis on found. Somebody has to have found this footage and put it together 
so that we, the viewer, can watch it and be a part of it. For Hell House 1, fine. I fully believe Mitch had every one of those videos to cut together into most of the documentary that we were watching. And it was presented as a documentary with some title slugs in between and obviously the editing of like zooming in on certain things. But for Diane to go missing at the end of Hell House 1 with the camera person and for Mitch to have never been in the house after that, who found the footage that we watched at the end of the film? Who cut it together? Who made this movie? Why am I watching it? A bunch of cops. The third one completely throws all of that out of the window as well. Because there's stuff going on when no one has a camera too. Like the ending where they all wake up and they're not dead anymore. And there's like no one really filming them. And where would that be found? Because none of them can leave anymore. That's another one of my gripes for found footage films that switch between being found footage and not found footage anymore. It totally breaks your immersion. I love immersion. That's why Marble Hornets sweep the internet by storm in 2009. Oh, fuck you. I was saving that up. What's Marble Hornets? The Slenderman videos. I only found out about these last year because it seems like this whole, um, what do you call them, creepy pasta things didn't really reach over here. So I am only only just learned about them last year. And so we watched the the Slenderman things and like yeah they were they were really creepy and I can imagine at the time having like the whole lore of like oh like this is real and it's just like been on the internet and stuff like that obviously finding out that creepypastas is a thing then obviously everyone then everything that was uploaded was like oh someone made this see but you got to kind of binge watch them Doza you and I were watching when it was coming out and That was such an experience because, first of all, it's through word of mouth that you usually find out about the Marble Hornets YouTube account. Oh, yeah. That's the best fucking marketing out there. And then we're watching it and waiting and waiting for things to be uploaded. There's no upload schedule. Things just happen. And then halfway through, I discovered way too late in the game that To The Ark was another account attached to it. Oh, dude, yeah. And so like now you have to backtrack and fit these puzzle pieces together. So it's like you're working with the people in these videos to sort of piece together the lore and it formed like its own community and its own forums on top of it. You you felt like you were making this movie and like, you, of course, you know, like it's fiction, but that's the most immersive it can be where you literally have your hands like into this lore and you're responsible for like finding things out on your own or helping others figure stuff out where you're like pasting audio into other parts of previous uploads and shit. Oh my god, I forgot about that. I went so hard when this was happening, because you're deciphering codes, you're playing audio backwards, forwards, slowed down. Like, that's immersive horror. That's the kind of thing that you can only do in, like, like, uh, a found footage horror film, specifically on YouTubes. What? Nothing. What? Nothing. What? I'll leave it for the listeners to find. That, like, whistle noise? Yeah, that's the audio from one of the To The Ark videos. Are you serious? Did you just put that on? Doza did. I got a little chill when I heard it. You know what's super strange? What? Didn't do anything. My computer's over here. Yeah, his computer didn't move. Are you fucking kidding me right now? That was the noise from one of the To The Ark videos, and it definitely just played under you talking, Doza. 
No way, dude. Look, do you see? Like, I'm scrolling up and down on my computer, which is here. Did at any point I go like this and say, See, see? That's why I like immersive horror. Now I'm all messed up because of some audio feedback from the microphone over our discussion of found footage. Even though, like, we know it's fiction, it's just, like, it felt real to to us because we were taking part in it the only way that like other found footage media does that is by like making the camera operator a sort of like every man where you're like you can marry sue yourself into their position and you're like they're just like me and they're reacting like a person would i'm here and i'm scared and like that's fun also but this is like next level where like i was following them on twitter and i was like Yo, fucking, did you see To The Ark updated? It's been two years. Like, what the hell? To just, like, my few friends that cared about this. I remember in college, like, I was watching with my roommate. He's the one that turned me on to it. He would leave me operator symbols in places just to freak me out. But then there were also some that were, like, because we lived in an old hotel building. Uh, the elevator would stop, and we would, like, pull the door open, and there would be operator symbols on the walls. Like, But also, like, it's just it's just a circle with the necks in it. And you could see that like anywhere and be like, ah, oh, ah. to the point where like, I'm on edge even today when I go to like a railroad crossing. I'm, like, you freak <laughs> out when you read X-Men or something. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another big reason why I don't feel that found footage horror, while I can view it as a respectable part of the filmmaking process. Thank you. I don't think it should get theatrical release. There's nothing less immersive than watching found footage in a theater. Found footage, when you find it on your own, when you watch it in the comfort of your own home, when you are the everyman watching the everyman, that's when it becomes terrifying and effective. I can't imagine watching most of these found footage films in a theater. I'm glad I didn't see Blair Witch Project in a theater. I saw Paranormal Activity in a theater, and I wanted my money back. Oh, that that's not that's made for home release only. But uh, I saw that in the perfect condition. I saw that I was it was everyone was drunk. It was a party. Everyone was passed out and crashed out in this house that I didn't know that well. And I was the only one who was still up. And I was like, oh, everyone's completely knocked out. I may as well just sit up and watch a film. And the only film that they had there was Paranormal Activity. And I was like, fine, screw it. Like, I'll try and sleep to this. Because I can't sleep unless I'm watching something sometimes. And I was like, I'm in a stranger's house. And it's really dark. And everyone's asleep. I'm going to put on something to sleep to at least. So I've got some noise. And so, yeah, I was sitting there in this little room. There was about five people passed out around me. And this tiny little TV in the corner, which I had to sit up really close so I didn't wake anyone. Like, while I was watching it. So I was sitting super close to this tiny little TV watching Paranormal Activity in the dark in a house I didn't know. And could hear people, like, walking around, but didn't know if it was, like, me freaking out from the film, if it was something paranormal, or if it was people that were also staying in the house. Because I didn't know who else oh was out there. Oh my god. So I had, like, the perfect situation to watch that movie. I didn't sleep. But, like... After watching that movie, like, at the time I was like, holy crap, that was so good, that was so creepy, I'm like, creeped out, it did its job. And then I started thinking about it afterwards, and I was like, it was the environment. The environment is what made that film, like, have an effect on me. If I'd watched that in, like, the daylight, or in the cinema, or anything like that, then, like, I don't think it, it would have had anything. It is of the same similar quality to Bad Ben. 
I liked Bad Ben. Bad Ben was made for a fraction of the price. Yeah, Bad Ben was was better than Paranormal Activity. I'm sorry, but Bad Ben was definitely better than Paranormal Activity. Yeah, like, Bad Ben, like, scared me. Again, I might have been in the circumstances under which I watched it, like, alone in my apartment on Amazon Prime. Like, ooh, what the hell is this? None of the Paranormal Activity movies have ever scared me. I always, I like, I think they're fun. I like watching them because I have a good time and I'm like, oh, wow, that was wacky. But, like, Bad Ben, that that's horror on a budget and it's on Amazon Prime, so... I just love that you're watching, like, this innocent guy that's just like, hey, I've got a camera and I don't have any friends, so I'm just gonna, like, film what's going on in my house. And, oh no, he puts the cameras up, doesn't he? He doesn't hold the... I don't know, it makes it more believable. And because, like, the acting isn't fantastic, you almost believe that he's just a normal guy in his house. Because it doesn't feel like he's acting, it feels like he's just talking to himself and he's just one of those people. So, I don't know, it, like, it wasn't particularly, like, scary to me, but I just really liked the way that he interacted with things, and his reactions to things were really funny as well. Like, he wanted to be friends with all the ghosts, and I thought that was really cute, because that's kind of what Anthony would do. If there was a found footage of, like, Anthony and interacting with ghosts, it would just be like, oh, oh, hey how are you like trying to just like have a normal conversation with them i mean if we're gonna praise found footage for being innovative because it does take some level of innovation to make a found footage film be good bad ben one man camera editing acting whatever i have to give props to bad ben for that being how it's produced i don't know about the rest of them i do want to watch the rest of the bad ben movies at some point wait which ones have it have you seen I've only seen the first one. Yeah, we watched the oh. first one because we just thought it sounded fun. I thought you watched Bad all the way up to Bad 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 Bad. <laughs> Help me, Bad Wait. Ben. Baddest Blood Ben Moon. I think we watched Bad Ben and the second one. Oh, did we watch Bad Ben? Yeah, I think we did. I think we did, mm-hmm. but we didn't watch the Crescent Moon Clown. Yeah, I think is the third one. Isn't or there a Crescent Silver Street something? There's a whole bunch of them that. We're on the... There's seven Bad Ben movies. That's amazing. But essentially, Bad Ben and Paranormal Activity are commercializing the YouTube videos that we all used to watch, Ghost Caught on Camera. That's what both of these films are. And to put the, the budget and the hype behind Paranormal Activity and to go see that in a theater, it's nothing different than what I could watch in a YouTube video of Ghost Caught on Tape. That is the problem that a lot of these films face nowadays because originally when found footage genre was like new, because there was such a law behind like, is this real? Is this not? People didn't know whether to believe if these things actually happened, if this was real found footage, because it was so new, like people didn't really know that technique. So they just assumed sometimes that this was real. And also there was a whole time period of horror where they could literally just say based on a true story and everyone would be like, oh my god, this is real. It's so easy to get with ba- get away with based on a true story. But people know that now, whereas they didn't know that when like, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, people didn't know that, you know, you can say pretty much anything is based on a true story. People thought that that was just the way it was. Like, things like Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, there were people who were convinced that those were real when they came out. 
we could technically, if we wanted to, chalk Texas Chainsaw Massacre up to being the first found footage horror film. Not that the film itself is found footage, but it opens and closes with the newscasters and the um, hype surrounding it was based on a true story and using these news articles to promote this film as if it were something based in reality. Yeah, like almost like it's a dramatization. They do ha- use found footage though as a technique in that because when they're doing the search through with the police at the right. beginning then the ending segment they're actually the ending then they're like actually filming like found footage like as if they're just finding all this evidence. So yeah, that that definitely counts. Which does Anna you'll be happy put it about 6 years before Cannibal Holocaust. Yep. Well, I think the only other thing I found was the connection, which is a mockumentary and a drama from the 60s. The I want to kind of, it's not like found footage, but the first like mockumentary type thing that I could think of, because every time I looked up like what's the first found footage, obviously it came up with Cannibal Hall, of course. It came up with Blair Witch Bunch, and I was like, hmm. But in my mind, like the first mockumentary type piece technically i would think would be awesome world's war of the worlds because the first production of that was a video broad a radio broadcast uh 1938 was oh my when the radio broadcast of awesome world's war of the worlds came on and they failed to mention that they were reading a book <laughs> And this is so a, work of fiction. a lot of people thought that it was a real news broadcast because that's the way that he presented it. He started it with like breaking news and then started the story. And so a lot of people genuinely thought that aliens were attacking the world and they were listening to a live broadcast of a poor reporter telling everyone what's going on in the world. And like that was done on purpose for the hype. So technically, wouldn't that be like the first time that someone used a mockumentary style in media. I would definitely consider that. I mean, unless we chalk it up to like tabloids and stuff, because those have been happening forever. But yeah, I mean, in a time where you're coming off of the Great War and people don't have home video, everybody's crowding around their radio for entertainment. So that, that would be the equivalent in 1938 of what we're experiencing with found footage now. God, fucking imagine being... (laughs) <laughs> like at home and listening to that broadcast and watching your family freak out that'd be so that, much that's fun. like real horror yeah fun it would be so I mean, much fun i'd love that but the, i but little bitty anna like <gasps> we gotta get out of here aliens are real and we sound like we're from new york in the 40s for some reason <laughs> in england <laughs> i don't know it's the transatlantic accent oh god <laughs> i suppose like yeah technically the first time it was used in a horror movie would text chainsaw which i'm very glad that you uh realized because i didn't want to give cannibal holocaust the credit well i have to talk about this because i am actually really against anyone being okay with cannibal holocaust existing a lot of people haven't seen the full version because there are so many edits out there of it and still in a lot of countries especially mine you're not the full version doesn't exist whether you think you have seen it or not, it doesn't exist because there are so many regulations still on what can be shown of that film. There's even a, the Grindhouse version is an animal cruelty-free version. 
And a lot of people have seen that and don't realise why it has so much controversy. I mean, people know that obviously the director was taken to court because he tried to do the marketing ploy of, oh, this is a real snuff movie and these actors did actually die. And he did actually get arrested after that hype and he had to call the actors out of hiding which he told them to go into just to like keep up the ploy yeah they drove into the courtroom in a little clown car they all got out and it's like it's us we're fine so he had to prove that they were still alive the thing is he did actually kill a lot of animals on screen for real including endangered species for the sake of cinema uh, including once uh, he killed an animal twice because he didn't get a good shot the first time so I'm going to list the animals. That I- <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm laughing, but the way that you said it sounded like he had killed it and then brought it back and killed it again. No, he just found another poor one. That's that's much more upsetting. Okay, so these are the animals that were killed in the making of, during the process of the film. So a coati, which is mistaken for a muskrat in the film, uh, they kill it with a knife on camera, and that, that's real. They take a large turtle which is endangered and decapitated it and its limbs and its shell and they removed the entrails. That's all real. They did that. They killed a tarantula with a machete. They killed a boa constrictor with a machete as well. They killed a squirrel monkey and they decapitated that with a machete. That's the poor animal that they didn't get it right the first shot. So they went and found another squirrel monkey and killed that one too. Um, And last but not least, they shot a pig in the head with a rifle at point blank. So those are actual things that the director wanted to happen, that the actors and everyone involved agreed to do and actually kill these animals. And everyone seems to be okay with this film existing. There is no universe where that is an okay thing to do. It's never an okay thing to do or a necessary thing to do to harm an animal for or a living person for the sake of a film. A lot of people got hurt in that just from the acting and everything, but the fact that they actually killed these animals and people are okay with celebrating this as cinema when it's not. It's literally just a reason to go out and kill some animals and not come up with a very good product, in my opinion, from doing that. But yeah, there is... I think if you're weighing, quote-unquote, cost, which is the cost of these animals' lives to results, Mm -hmm. it it definitely doesn't make Cannibal Holocaust... There's nothing that that can make that okay. Looking at how a film is made and looking into what certain people think was an okay thing to do for the sake of profit is is just wrong. So like... Like you just said, Anna, how it's made. Sure, everybody has their interests in how certain traditionally narrative films are made. You want to know how certain shots are lit, things like that. But when you're watching found footage you're automatically posing yourself the question of how it's made. You're automatically into the filming process. So if you're going to be doing something like Cannibal Holocaust, you better be ready for people to ask how it's made. People are going to ask questions. People are going to take you to court over it. Yeah, I mean, he's still got a warrant out in several countries. Film's still banned in places like New Zealand. But yeah, it's a, a lot of people, as I said, may not have realized all of this because they're watching edited versions of it. And that's why it's important to to figure out which version you're seeing. I didn't even realize that there were international multi-edits until you brought that up. Yeah. Like, every country that it was released in has a different edit of this film. Yeah. 
Including, I think in America, there's four different edits. And I'd love to play them all simultaneously and see like where. Yeah, I think there's like, what we get. the The most full version. There's only five minutes cut from it, but apparently that's the rarest one to find because that's the original one that came out on yeah, VHS, sure. and then it was pulled. So if anyone happened to in between 1980 and 1981 happened to go and buy it on VHS, you're the only ones who have the the longest edit. There's no reason, like, e- even back then, and especially today, to result to actually harming any animals with what we can do uh, with practical effects and even with CGI. I would much prefer to see that over anything yeah, else. That's, that's my other point. Like, they had no excuse because he could have completely done that with practical effects. I mean, we just had the exorcist, like, before that. Yeah, they made, like, a whole girl. Yeah, right? If you can do that... And, like, so many other films that use practical effects beautifully. Yeah, hang on. I'm going to open my drawer right now. I'll make you a fucking monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. But, I mean, it's... Buttons for the eyes. It, I mean, I've unfortunately found out, like, some really horrible things by researching. Because I've always known this about Cannibal Holocaust. I've always hated it for it. It wasn't until I actually had to research it to, like, make my point that I found out just how bad it was. Also finding out other directors that have used this as a thing so i kind of just broke it to anna that the body of beauty in the hills have eyes the original is a real dog and wes craven is quoted as saying we bought a dead dog from the country and let's leave it at that but here's something good uh there's paco plaza cited cannibal holocaust as uh an inspiration to make wreck and Wreck 2, and they didn't kill any animals for those, and those are actually good movies. That's very true. Speaking of... Don't um, do this, please. You can't take this away from us, Anthony, please. No, I'm not going to take it away from you at all. Uh, 20 episodes in, I finally sat down and watched Wreck. Like a lot of listeners out there, if you're US-based, I'm sure you probably heard about Quarantine before you heard about Wreck. We got the hype here. We got all the advertising for Quarantine. We got Which the theatrical Which was just like the release. same shots from fucking Wreck. But that's exactly it. Like I watched Wreck and Quarantine side by side. They are... The exact same film, except for like a few small changes. I will say that in my opinion, I think the lighting and set design for Quarantine is more compelling. It's a bit darker. It's a bit more of an immersion of like, you can't fully make out just how red the blood is. I like the part where they're both pretty good movies. I think they're both amazing. The the, the whole point is though, like the reason why I don't ever recommend Quarantine is the fact that it didn't need to be made. Wreck already existed. It's just that, in my opinion, the only reason Quarantine was made was because, I'm sorry, but Americans don't like reading subtitles. And every time that there is a foreign film, it does get remade in an American way so that people will watch it. Yeah, and now everybody's so horny for Parasite all of a sudden, but they wouldn't give shit like Wreck an opportunity. Yeah. I'm glad things like Parasite are taking the spotlight so that we can finally change this shitty stigma. Because my only defense for quarantine being made is my same defense for let me in versus let the right one in. It draws attention to the other one. And distribution. If Wreck didn't get an American distribution, but is such an amazing film, then they had to do something alternative in order to get it into the States. So we watch quarantine. It's the exact same film. And then now that Wreck is available on almost every streaming platform, 
now people who have watched Quarantine can sit back and say, I can finally watch Wreck. The other thing about the two of them, the major difference is Quarantine, the cause of the events of that night is scientific. So for me, Quarantine, one and done, I this is a complete story. I'm happy with it. I don't need to know anymore. There is a Quarantine 2. I haven't seen it. I have no desire to see it because I think Quarantine 1 was one and done. But Wreck has a supernatural cause at the end of it, which leaves you with more questions than answers, which I haven't seen Wreck 2, but makes me want to watch Wreck 2. Wreck 2 is basically explained... Well, Wreck 2 starts where Wreck 1 stops, which is cool, same night, and they're very clever with the way that they do the cameras. They have good reason to be bringing back cameras into the building. It's not like, oh, here's another film crew. Like, you know... um, (laughs) We just keep sending them in. (laughs) They go more into the law and the reason for this virus um, and the religious aspect of things. And so you're carrying on the story. Like the second one is more for the story. The first one is like the setup. I still prefer the first one. I haven't seen the third wreck, but apparently it's got nothing to do with the first two. Yeah, that's where it starts going off the rails. We talked about this a little bit in the zombies episode where I, I love them because they're like, this is where it gets into more Anthony territory, where they're like balls to the wall, fucking ridiculous, uh, and they're no longer like straight horror. But I mean, the good thing that did, what well, I say, the good thing, the only thing <laughs> that's kind of redeeming about quarantine is the fact that the director then went on to do As Above, So Below. I, sho- I did not know it was the same director. I was really shocked when I watched that movie um, because I, you told me that it was good. And you always do this thing where like, even if something is incredible, you'll be like, yeah, it's good. Until I've watched it and you're like, yeah, isn't it incredible? Or like, yeah, I it was just I don't want to influence your opinions yeah. watching it. Unless you're listening to the podcast in which it's my <laughs> job to influence your opinions over the things you're watching. No, I appreciate you doing that. It's like the the first two years of me and Anthony dating with me, like Brain Dead's the best movie ever. Brain Dead's the best movie ever, or Dead Alive for for Americans. And then he watched it and he was like, Yeah, it's good. But yeah, as above so below. So when I watched it, I wasn't really expecting anything. And because I always have this prejudice against new movies and it was so recent, I was like, Eh, yeah, I've watched a whole bunch of really crappy new movies recently. But it was incredible. The suspense build was nearly on par with creep. The characters were built really well but without being pushed on you and it was it was just genuinely interesting and it was it wasn't reliant on jump scares it was more into like encountering weird situations rather than like turning around and there's something in your face then like it was just turning around and then slowly panning around and being like what the fuck is happening in this room like yeah they really capture the trippiness yeah it's such a it's it's more of a psychological found footage film which you don't get a lot of but also it was so like heavy with actual research and i love it when they actually put a law or like some sort of history into a movie and they've actually done their research they did so much research on so many things that like i'm obsessed with because obviously like i know a lot about Paris, which is where it's set. Uh, I know a lot about the catacombs. I know a lot about the history that they were going on about. So for like a real history nerd like me, I was just so happy that they'd researched it. But also one of my favorite bits of As Above, So Below is the ending. They kind of 
get out. And they put the camera on the floor and they all like hug each other and then they kind of look at each other like, well, what do we do now? And one of them just like waves and then just walks away. And like the other two are just sort of left there like not knowing how to process. And I don't know why like that whole scene, I was just like, that's so realistic. Because what the fuck would you do after that situation? Like, yeah, your immediate thing would be like, oh my god, we got out, yay! And then you'd be like, I'm gonna go. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna throw myself into the river, I don't know. Exactly, you wouldn't know what to do. And so I, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, a claustrophobic rob through the catacombs of France with an ambiguous payoff at the end and great effects and cinematography. It's just, it's so fun. And a real portrayal of panic attack as well. Before anything happens, oh, yeah, when yeah. he has that panic attack about being claustrophobic, I literally had to like breathe and remember that I wasn't in the movie because I was like, okay, I can feel you. This is very real. It's that totally immersive element of found footage that makes it worthwhile to watch. And I feel like Wreck and Quarantine, they kind of bridge the gap between found footage and mockumentary. Because it is interspersed with the interviews, which is like a key factor of mockumentary, is that this is a documentary, it's being treated like a documentary, you have the talking headshots of people communicating information. And I think that's where a lot of mockumentary goes wrong, because it has an open platform to talk down to its audience. It doesn't matter what you're watching, somebody will come in to explain it. And we hit that with The Devil Inside. Okay, so weird thing about The Devil Inside... Me and Anthony have watched this twice now, and the f- it's so forgettable. It's so forgettable that we actually watched it the second time, thinking we hadn't watched it the first time, and then we were like, "I swear, I've seen this scene before," and not long ago, like a couple of months ago, and even just when you said it, right now, even though we rewatched it for the second time, and when you just said the title, I was like, "Oh, I haven't seen that yet." It's that forgettable. <laughs> I genuinely keep forgetting that I've seen it. It's another cut and dry exorcism film. It's like somebody saw the right and said, I want to make that, but bad. <laughs> um, and so they did the right without a budget. So without a budget, you do found footage, you do mockumentary. There are so many of these found footage and mockumentary films that would be better served if they were a traditional narrative. And they're not served by the found footage genre. Found footage is just a budget excuse at that point. This episode of the Hauntsville Cryptcast is brought to you by Reanimated Apparel. Check them out at letsreanimate.rip to pick up some spooky shirts, hoodies, undies, you name it. And save 10% by using our code Hauntsville at checkout. That's letsreanimate.rip or at letsreanimate on Instagram. Now back to the episode. I don't think I have any other major points to make. Well, you don't have any other films to talk about? I definitely have other films to talk about. I could talk all day about found footage and mockumentary films that miss the mark entirely, especially since preparing for this episode, I watched so many of them. Blast off a couple. Uh, I have a list here of films that were just straight up bad. Malevolent, Demonic, House of the Witch. Anna and I suffered through House of the Witch together. That was one of those films that, like, should have been a narrative. It wasn't served by the found footage element. And there are a lot of shots that don't make sense, which is another thing that I run into with found footage and mockumentary is, again, people forgetting that you're making a found footage. So they start adding angles that wouldn't exist. After all this, like, painful 
boring over and over found footage and mockumentary research. I watched House on Fraternity Row, which sounded like it was going to at least be funny or fun to sit through. And it was terrible. There was nothing redeeming about it. They came up with an innovative excuse for why they had all the angles that they had in that the fraternity gave all of the pledges their own cameras. So cool, that makes sense. You're at a party, you have all these shots of everybody's different cameras. But still, there's a ton of shots that would not exist because there aren't fraternity members in those scenarios, in those shots. Nobody would have had a camera there. And then it falls into the trap of who found it. Because the film is partly scored, which makes no sense in a found footage film. Part of the suspense comes from not having a score to tell you how to feel. And this film is partly scored. It ends with the police coming and starts and ends with police camera footage. But then, like, narratively speaking, you're telling me that the police found all this footage of this crime scene, edited it together, and scored it with party music, and then distributed it. What a fucking dumb concept. There's only really, like, two, I suppose, noteworthy films that I watched while researching that just missed the mark. So the first one was a film called Hollow, uh, which is a British film. So I was excited. <laughs> and uh, that was in 2011. It basically, like, follows this group of people who go on, like, a little trip to this girl's hometown, which is in um, Suffolk in England, which has, like, really heavy folklore anyway, which is awesome. And they actually base the whole story around an existing folklore there, which is of the hanging tree. I recently found out, I think it was for you, Anthony, that there is also a Suffolk in America that also has a hanging yeah. tree. Yep. Suffolk County, Long Island. I'm in it. It's we right have here. a hanging tree. I digress. Uh, the, so the film is based around the, the hanging tree and the lore and stuff. And I was like, that's really cool. I love films that play on actual folklore because there is some terrifying folklore out there that really needs to be played with. But it was shaky cam. The acting was terrible. You could tell that it was improv in places because you almost felt like the pause between them of like, oh, who's going to speak now? But not in a, a an actual like humanistic way. It was more like actors looking at each other in an improv setting. So apart from the the folklore element of it, it was it just completely failed. And I kept looking at the timer, like when can I turn this off? Because we have the seventy five percent rule that I I carry through even when we're not doing the festival now. And the other one that I watched was Evidence, which is two thousand twelve. That guy from True Blood produced it and is in it. Which one? The guy that plays Bill. He's got old face. <laughs> yeah. The problem with that movie was they tried to do something new with the genre and they made it half found footage and half an action movie that wasn't oh, found footage. Oh, no thank you. So you go into the movie where like it's just a normal Hollywood action movie and the police are like, guys, we've got these tapes, we need to do. figure out who did this, blah, 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 let's watch them. And then you go into the, like, you're watching it with them. The problem with that, though, is that would make an okay intro and outro, but halfway through they keep pausing and going, wait, rewind. So you're getting into a scene and then suddenly it will go pause and then it's back to the, the police in this room reviewing tapes going, wait, rewind and like play this uh. again. And so you're sucked in and out of the story constantly. Also, my biggest problem with it was that 
anywhere you look up this film, on their poster, in all of their marketing, it says, with a chilling twist at the end. Who does that as your marketing? That is suicide. Because everyone will then go into that film and look for that twist, and I found it within ten minutes. Wait, isn't that how they were advertising Psycho or something like that? Where they were like, you won't believe what we got at the end. Yeah, but I think it was the concept of twists weren't a huge thing back then, so people were just like, ooh, I wonder what happens. They weren't looking for it. Ah. Whereas now, if you tell anyone that a movie has a twist... Yeah, that becomes the only yeah, thing I care about. Yeah, exactly. Whereas sometimes when you have a twist, it gives you a reason to go like, oh, I never saw that coming. So you rewatch it and then you're like, oh, I can see the little Easter eggs that were planted in there. Yeah, how did I not see yeah, this coming? Yeah, exactly. What a fool I am. So yeah, that was, that was a foolish movie. So you guys want to wrap this one up? No. Yo, did we talk about Troll Hunter yet? No. That's probably one of like my favorite found footage films ever. And I was so shocked with Troll Hunter. That and Hobo with a Shotgun have been like the best films where I've looked at the title and been like, this is going to be ridiculous. And then I've watched it. They were sleeper hits. Like you don't expect yeah. them to be that as good as they are. Exactly. I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. And then you watch it and you're like, oh my God, this is a serious movie. And this is so good. To the point that like Troll Hunter is so ridiculous in concept. But when you're watching it, it makes you feel like trolls exist and you need to fight them and they're bad. And... <laughs> Like, it totally got me afterwards. I was like, oh my god. And I looked up, like, the whole lore of trolls after I first watched this. It's by the same director as Autopsy of Jane Doe. So it's beautiful, obviously. And even though it's found footage, it's directed so beautifully. Like, to the point where you almost forget that it's found footage. Is is Troll Hunter found footage or mockumentary? I mean, yeah, that's true. It is technically a mockumentary. It's beautiful because, like, the creatures are, like, Del Toro-esque. With the way that they look. But yeah, like everything in that film just looks beautiful. And obviously it was too difficult to create these huge troll monsters that are constantly on camera with practical effects for the most part. They And they do a good job with the CGI. But they do use practical effects on like zoom-ins of the creatures, which I really appreciate. It's almost like Jurassic Park-esque. When they can do practical, then they will. But when it's genuinely impossible, they obviously have to rely on CGI. Yeah. Um, Very rare that we get found footage creature features. Yeah. We get a good handful of like cryptid hunters, but like apart from Troll Hunter and Cloverfield, and Cloverfield is, I would consider it more sci-fi if I want to look at it in a positive light, but otherwise <laughs> it's a bust. <laughs> Although, if we want to talk about marketing akin to Blair Witch, the marketing for Cloverfield was incredible. I it was... spent such a long time talking to John from Moodlight Madness Reviews about this. That is an immersive world of marketing. The thing that really <laughs> bugged me about Cloverfield was actually when they showed the monster. I was like, oh, okay, good build up to this. And then, you know, they're not going to show the monster, which is a good decision. And then they showed it and I was like, done. Good night. Yeah. And it sucks because I'm such a huge Godzilla person as well. Yeah, that's what everybody thought. We, we thought we were getting a Godzilla movie. But we did have an awesome one come out last year. Still haven't seen so, it. Like, not that mad. Oh, Thanks dude. to Michael Doherty. Oh, I love Michael Doherty. Yeah. Also, Michael Doherty is now on Instagram. <gasps> like, That makes me so happy because I put up so much about Michael Doherty and I've never been able to tag him. So when he got Instagram, I was like, oh my god. Michael Doherty is on Instagram at InstaMikeDoherty if you want to <laughs> check out what he's doing. It's the king of Halloween. He brought us Trick or Treat. Mm -hmm. That movie and Houses October Built, that's a world I want to live in. Houses October Built is essentially 
the reason why we wanted to do this episode to begin with. I would love it if we could get them on the podcast and just talk about Houses October Built, because I could do a whole episode on those two films. Definitely. And they're the nicest guys ever, so I'm sure they will. Obviously, we've talked about Houses October Built on here before, and... If you looked at anything to do with our film festival, Scared for Your Life, then you'll know that one of our trophies was the Blue Skeleton Award, which was inspired by House of October Built, which is given as an award for doing the most with the least budget. So that was dedicated There's to such them. a great example of that, because, like, again, coming from the 2011 documentary into making the 2014 film, they took a documentarian approach to making a found footage horror film. So there aren't really any loose ends. It's done in a very professional manner. And they, they've they created this world in a world that already exists using real haunts, using real haunt actors. Like, you can go out and experience Houses October Built on your own every Halloween My season. God, I hope not. No, all, all the good parts. <laughs> I know, but if I met the porcelain girl in real life, I would I would just <gasps> pass out or like freak. Ooh, I just got I, Right? Okay, this is my number one point with Houses October Built. The porcelain girl is the most chilling character I've ever seen in a horror movie in my whole life. And like, it, it genuinely gives me goosebumps to just think of her. And it's not because of the way she looks, it's the way she acts. And, my god, the scene where she gets on the bus and just screams. I've never (laughs) had so many nightmares and so many chills just over something as simple as that in my whole life. Like, it shook me to my very core when I saw that scene. And in, like, the best way. Like, I would watch that film a million times and still just be obsessed with it. Oh, it's making me freak out. (laughs) Yeah, I'm bugging out. We're recording during the daytime over here, and I'm, like, looking out my windows. Bringing her back in the second one is another one of those cases of, like, having her character in the scenario of the second film with what her character provides implies so much more than is said in the film. That made it's it why scarier. If they made a third one, I would be so on board. But the fact that they capped it at two, we've been blessed enough to get these two films, I'll take it. They keep me thinking because again documentarian approach the documentary is the main story that's what you're watching so everything else that happens it's implied it's done in a way that you have to think about the implications you have to think about what's happening in the surrounding scenario outside of the main characters that we're following but the second one just kind of blows your mind because the second one like takes everything from the first one. After you see the second one, you have to go back and watch the first one again. It just completely changes the whole thing. In We're going to have to do this episode. We got to <sighs> we got to stop ourselves. Yeah, there's like oh, I said, it's, I can go on forever it's completely about completely worthy of its own episode, but it has to be mentioned doing <laughs> found footage. Like oh, there yeah. is so much about those movies that completely blows my mind. House of October Built, I think, is the one that changed my mind about found footage. Because most of these films that I talked about today, I watched retroactively. I watched a lot of them during these last two weeks. Most of the ones that I didn't like, I watched shortly after their releases leading up to them. So I think House of October Built is really what changed my mind. But again, it's the idea of the immersion. 2011, the documentary comes out. You're following this crew uh, who put together this awesome documentary uh, which now you can only watch on i think the best buy edition blu-ray 
I think that is the only place it exists right now. You're following them through this, and then we get the film, and everybody's, like, Instagram and Twitter active. Like, they're all accessible, and we've seen the filmmaking process from documentary to feature found footage horror film. I love that they're all actually friends in real life as well. Like, <laughs> it, it's... That's what makes their character yeah, dynamic so believable. Because straight oh, yeah. away, you're like you buy the friendship whereas like most movies have to build it up whereas like straight away you're like okay i can see the dynamic of each one of these people that's because they weren't really acting they were just being themselves not like in the horrible parts i'm not going to get into that because i do (laughs) i do want to leave this as spoiler free as possible because i really want people to watch this and i want everyone to have a reason to watch this and i know that i said earlier that i'm really bad with like overhyping films but Anthony doesn't like hyping up films, and he will go on about this for days. So just that's how I trust got you to us watch all. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you guys want your fear of the day? Yes. Your fear of the day is scopophobia. It's a fear of being focused upon. Yeah. Oh, Nailed it in one, dude. Whoa, whoa really? Yeah. <laughs> We are crushing it, we're good at this game. <laughs> Anthony sucks at picking the fears. Scopophobia is the fear of being looked at, watched, or viewed objectively in person, image, or otherwise. So it um scared of that? if you wanted to get into the idea of the Amish folklore of having the superstition of having your photo taken, taking a piece of your soul, that falls into scopophobia. Dorian Gray, scopophobia. It's the fear of your image being focused on or viewed objectively. Anyone got recommendations? You guys got any recommendations? I got a fuck ton of recommendations. <laughs> By mistake. Does anybody want one? No, I'm good. Okay, cool. Taking of Deborah Logan. Pretty awesome. If you haven't seen it, go oh, see it. Oh, I forgot about Taking of I've Deborah never Logan. I've even heard this. It's on yeah. Shutter right now. Oh. It is. It's very good. Definitely watch it. As soon as possible. Maybe after we stop recording right now. The VHS franchise. First one was good. Second one was even better. Third one sucks shit. The second one has a segment. Uh, they're anthology movies filmed by uh, one of the guys that, uh, Eduardo Sanchez, that worked on Blair Witch. What about UFO Abduction or the McPherson tape? It's an American found footage film. 1989. It's about aliens. Anthony, oh, you will like I it. I can't watch it's that good. one. It's so good. It's so, so good. My actual recommendation. I just talked a mile a minute because I had so much we didn't even get to. Uh, but it's uh, Noroi, The Curse. It's a Japanese found footage mockumentary. I rewatched it. I used to really enjoy it. It's kind of long and a little bit dry, but the lore is very interesting. And it is done by the guy that did um, Sadako vs. Kyako, The Ring vs. The Grudge. Still dying to watch that. Which is, is so, so good. So that's Noroi, N-O-R-O-I, The Curse. And that's all of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yet, I, <laughs> I struggled to find one. There are so many found footage films. I'm sorry that we didn't get to more. There's just so much that we could have said. My recommendation isn't a found footage, but it's uh, a mockumentary. Oh, boo. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't care. Well, okay, so it's not a mockumentary, but it, it has real information, real history, but some of it is fabricated and presented in a documentary style. So, okay, this film is actually from... I didn't count it as the first mockumentary. I mentioned Orson Welles in 1938, but this is actually from 1922. It's called Haxan. It's a Swedish mockumentary, and it's uh, a silent film. And it... So I say it presents real information, but it, like, also 
doesn't because it's fabricated. Anyway, um, it explores the history of witchcraft and demonology and Satanism with a mixture of still images, animation, and live-action recreations of certain parts of history. And it's it's a trip. You don't really get a lot of information out of it because you kind of have it's silent movie. You kind of have to like figure a lot of it out. But obviously there is a lot of text to go through as well. I managed to find a translated version, but that was quite hard to find. But it, you can watch the full thing on uh, YouTube, and it's it's just a complete trip. Like they kind of present, you know, when you see like documentaries about like witchcraft and the occult and blah, blah, blah they present it as in like, well, people fought this and. People speculated this, like, as if, like, witches aren't fucking real. And this is all, like, presenting the demonology and the witchcraft and stuff as fact. Like, these demons exist, and these witches exist, and blah, blah, blah. Like, they present it as an actual documentary, which they should, because, you know, people shouldn't just watch the same witchcraft documentaries just about the Salem witch trials and be like, of course there were no actual witches. Bullshit. Oh, I've seen The Craft. I understand. Oh, honey. Hey, speaking of The Craft, uh, there's a found footage film called The Witch Files that is just The Craft, but found footage and not as good. Oh, no. Oh, no, I, I'll just watch The Craft. <laughs> you, Anthony, you could have said nothing, and the, <laughs> I would I would feel exactly the same. <laughs> Was uh, that your recommendation? What's your recommendation? What's your bad recommendation, Anthony? So, because I don't have a film recommendation in suit with today's episode, because I pretty much mentioned every horror, every found footage horror film that I've actually liked, I'm going to give you all the gift of immersive horror and recommend that, one, follow Gregory88 on Twitter with uh, three for the E. So it's G-R-3-G-O-R-Y-88. As far as we can still determine, it's still active. Things are still happening. But uh, the Twitter account is a fully immersive horror scenario of somebody living out this horror. And, um, sorry. We're so close. I know. Did you just hang up on um, me? Yeah. Did you, but you didn't know who it was. <laughs> no rules. <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. <laughs> The other thing that I want to recommend is a book. It's called S, uh, or Ship of Theseus. You can pretty much get a copy of this for about $20. Make sure that you're getting a new intact version. So the book itself doesn't really matter. But there's, in the margins of the book, is written a whole separate story in what appears to be uh, handwritten ink and uh, a ton of supplementary material that creates this mystery. Now, when you get your copy of S, don't get it for yourself. Get it, take the jacket off, throw the jacket away, put the book in somebody's mailbox, brown bag it or something. I did this to my mom, and I just left this book on our doorstep, and she read through it, and one night at 3 o'clock in the morning... She knocks on my door and she's like, we need to call the cops. So definitely fully immersive horror. Bring a little horror to your life. <laughs> she's like, people are going missing. I have passwords here. 
Oh, oh yeah, Carol, to... you're the you're the one that they decided to notify. <laughs> I had to break it to her that That's... I had planned this all along. I love your mom. <laughs> Sorry that I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> But yeah, bring a little immersive horror into your life. No, that's very cool. Hell yeah. Thank you all for tuning in to the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anthony. I'm I'm Doza. I'm Anna. Are you okay? I'm thinking who is that? What?